Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello, fellow time travelers. I hope you're well. To help support this podcast, sign up to my Patreon site, and each week you'll receive an exclusive vodcast that's recorded here in my home in Stirling, and it features a mix of history and comment and current affairs. Also on the site, there's a whole archive of films that Paul and I have already recorded. There's one about James Bond, there's another about the graves of ancient lovers found locked in eternal embrace... There's a vodcast about the history of pandemics, another about the Spartan warriors who inspired the film 300, the Battle of Britain's there. Anyway, I'm sure you get a sense of it. Uh, And to get your hands on the whole collection, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver, and I'll look forward to seeing you there. Okay, that's the advert about my Patreon site. Here comes this week's podcast. Cue the music. It was happening to people they didn't care about, felt no empathy for, felt no sense of kin with. And so when the tragedy started to sweep them up, there was a massive lag in time before anybody gave a damn. In this episode, a dark shadow is falling across all of Ireland. Starvation stalking the land. Over a million people dying of hunger and disease. And maybe a million more fleeing the horror. Greed and profit ruled over human lives. As ships fully laden with food left Irish ports. And the great hunger and Gorta Moor made its terrible mark. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode we stood in the shade of a beautiful sycamore tree as the Tolpuddle martyrs struggled for their rights. Where are we this week? Paul, this week we're leaving Dorset behind, uh, crossing the Irish Sea to witness an event which has caused a deep wound between these islands ever since. It was a time of unimaginable pain and suffering that transformed Ireland. We're standing on the edge of a mass grave in the cemetery at Aberstruri in County Cork. Call this one a love letter is quite, um, it's maybe not the best possible term to apply. It's a very sad story, a tragic story, really, 
there's other stories as awful, but you know, you'd, you'd go some to find anything more heartbreaking than the what you read about in the history books as the Irish potato famine. That's the subject matter behind this one. The location is Aberstruri Cemetery, which is in a place called Skibbereen in County Cork in the Republic of Ireland, down in the south. I was filming in Skibbereen, doing a, a different story entirely. I'd been out in a wee boat. So I was there uh, for other reasons. And in, in a break in filming, I stumbled across the cemetery at Aberstruri and discovered, well, it's, you can't miss it, there's a, a mass grave in Aberstruri Cemetery. Now, Skibbereen's a small, it's a village. It's in a beautiful location, the sort of land landscape I suppose a lot of people think about when they think of Southern Ireland. Rolling green soft. I think there was a soft rain falling even while we were there. It's, it's very picturesque and lovely and restful. But in the cemetery there's a mass grave of 10,000 men, women and children. And it's so out of place. You know, you think, this just this is so wrong. How... That kind of death toll, 10,000 people is like the population of a small town. And you think, how can this be here in this lush, peaceful landscape? And of course, it all winds back to the story of, of the numbers who died for want of food in the 1840s. did this mass grave look like? Well, Aberstruri Cemetery is, the, is, a, is a village, uh, you know, graveyard. So there's convention, you know, there's gravestones with people's names on and the usual thing. But there's a plot of land within it. Not very big, really. Not when you're talking about 10,000 people, but it's one great big hole in the ground into which 10,000 corpses were put. During the Irish potato famine, so-called, over a million people died. The numbers are hard to come by because the disaster became so massive. It was hard to keep track. So a million people died either for want of food or of all the sorts of things like dysentery and cholera and typhus and the other sort of diseases that strike when people are weakened by starvation, by a prolonged period of not getting enough food. So the numbers are hard. But so many people dying at once, apart from anything else, it, it's massive logistical problems. And in the vicinity of Skibbereen and Aberstruri, there simply weren't enough people fitting well enough to bury the, the dead in a conventional sense. You know, as in individual graves, put the dead people in coffins and conduct a normal funeral. So people were just being buried en masse, maybe just in their clothes, maybe wrapped in a shroud. There was just a necessity to get the bodies underground as quickly as possible because, you know, massive amounts of dead bodies brings its own disease and there weren't enough people left fit and well to deal with it in the normal way. So you end up with a mass grave. The survivors have, have no option but to quickly get the, the, the dead bodies dealt with. From a purely health and hygiene point of view, you've got to do it. So you're in this beautiful place, in this soft, peaceful landscape that tricks you into thinking that nothing much can ever have happened. And you find yourself confronted with death on that scale. We've talked before, I don't, do you remember we did the love letter from Baltimore where the Muslim pirates came in and, and took away an entire village? As happened a lot around the coasts of Northern Europe, Britain and Ireland, people were snatched and taken away to 
slave markets in places like Tunis, and off they went into the slave trade of the Ottoman Empire and whatever. So it's strange to say that part of Ireland has been touched by slavery, starvation, famine. It's important to remember that, that famine and, and slavery are part of our story too, which is to say the story of these British Isles. And so incongruous and out of place though a mass grave might seem, it's not. It's just part of the story. It's part of the darkness, part of the tragedy that is the three-dimensional story of the British Isles. There's a lot of heartbreak. What was the population of Ireland at the time? It couldn't have been that high. No, I think it was about 8 million people. Um, and it got... It got it's hard to, I, mean, I think you're looking at it it, it, it was cut by anything up to half in, certainly in some places the Irish as I said at the top in the history books you, you read about or you'll hear about the famine and famine as we know from disasters that have unfolded elsewhere in the world it implies an absence of food that people starve to death because there's nothing to eat but in the Irish language which is Gaelic the Irish remember that time, 1845, 1846, 1847, as Angorta which is the Great Hunger. And what's even worse than all these people dying is that there was plenty of food around. Wow. The tragedy of it is that there was food. There's a, an academic called Christine Keneally from the Kinnipiac University in, in Connecticut. And she's written about all of this. I'm one among many. And in 1847, which was the probably the worst year of the disaster, 4,000 ships set sail from ports, taking away all sorts of food. Oats, barley, wheat, calves and sheep, bacon and hams, beans, herrings, lard, honey, onions, oysters, rabbits, salmon. Huge, huge quantities more than 8,000 gallons of butter left Ireland that year destined for ports like Bristol and Liverpool so there was plenty of food but the starving weren't allowed anywhere near it the ships were often loaded and departed under armed guard to keep the starving Irish away from it and it's that that means that Angorta Moore, the great hunger is such a scar in the Irish collective memory because it was an avoidable disaster. There was no need for it to happen. That horror stemmed from years, decades of neglect of the Irish people by the landlords. A great deal of Ireland was owned by absentee British landlords. And quite often those landlords never visited they might come and see their holdings once, twice in a lifetime. They might never come. And instead, the estates, the landed estates, were run on their behalf by middlemen who were their factors and ran the estates. And those factors made their living by subletting the land. And what they would do to maximise their profits was subdivide the plots of land down to the point where they were too small, really, to be functioning in terms of plots of land that would keep a family alive. And it got to the point where the only crop you could grow 
that would produce enough food to feed a family was the potato. The potato comes from South America originally. There, there were no potatoes in Europe until the time of Christopher Columbus and the rest of the Spanish and the Portuguese going to the Americas and they found the potato. It's from the nightshade family, you know, the chilies, sweet peppers, tomatoes, all sorts of things. And they found the potato amongst the Incas and they realised it for what it was, which was a kind of a, a superfood. If you plant potatoes, they'll give you a, a huge crop in terms of the relation to the area of land you're growing it from. And it meant that when it was introduced to Ireland and because of the way in which people's land holdings, the, the poor people, they didn't own the land, they just rented it. And they were in a cycle of poverty. All they could do to eke out a living and to put food on the table was to grow potatoes. Potatoes are a very nutritious crop. The people of Ireland, the poor people in Ireland, were living on almost nothing else. They were just eating potatoes and maybe eking it out with, you know, the odd bit of fish or the odd bit of meat if they had the money and they could afford it. And it was just about sustainable until during the 1840s, a blight, a disease came into Ireland and the rest of Europe from the Americas. Amongst other things that were being brought back in huge quantities from the Americas were seabird guano for fertiliser. And it's thought that in there or in, or in something similar, a, a disease was brought in that affected the potato plants. And this potato blight, as it was called, went all through Europe and it devastated the, the potato crop everywhere. But in a place like Ireland, where the poorest of the poor ate nothing else, it was catastrophic. And one year of bad harvests would have been bad enough, but it hit in 1845, then the same thing happened again in 1846, and then the same thing happened again in 1847. So the people just had literally nothing to eat. There was absolutely no useful response from the landowners. The people were supposed to fall back on soup kitchens and workhouses if they couldn't feed themselves. But that infrastructure, if you like, there was not enough of it was put in place and it wasn't put in place fast enough. And so people just died in their thousands and their hundreds of thousands. And then, as I say, eventually, difficult to say, but let's say a million people died for want of food. And all the time, the, the landowners were exporting food. Such was the callous disregard for the plight of the people. The British government at the time was a Whig administration led by a Prime Minister called Lord John Russell. And the callous disregard that, that was manifest has led to all sorts of accusations, up to and including that the authorities might have exploited the hunger to get rid of the Irish. That rumour started to spread that there was a, sort of a, a murderous, even a genocidal, that word was used, well, it has been used subsequently by some commentators that it was actually being used to get rid of a troublesome Catholic population that had been a thorn in the side of the British authorities for the longest time. Later on, in the 1930s, uh, Joseph Stalin presided over the Holodomor, which was a, a mass starvation uh, in the Ukraine. He stood by while people, you know, died en masse. They turned cannibal in their desperation in the Ukraine. And what happened in, in Ireland, although there was no report of cannibalism in Ireland that I'm aware of, but the extent of the disaster has, has put it on a par with other 
sort of man-made horrors that have happened elsewhere. And so it was just an unspeakable tragedy, and, and some of the world's responses to it are, are nothing less than bizarre. The first donation of cash to try and, and help actually arrived from Calcutta. It was Irish expats who worked for the East India Company, and they had read about what was happening back in the homeland in the newspapers, and they raised money and they sent it. And so the first fundraising was in Calcutta. And then an American repurposed warship called the USS Jamestown arrived in Cork Harbour in 1847 with food that had been gathered by Irish people in North America and sent back to the old country. And eventually, late in the day, there were donations from the Pope, Tsar Nicholas I of Russia, you know, were sending money to try and alleviate what was finally understood to be happening in Ireland. But it was all too late. The mass dying took hold and had its effect before anyone could properly respond to it. When we think of disasters, we think of events that happen quickly. But this is slow motion disaster. Yes. Three years. Yes, they just, people, they, it was just allowed to happen. I think the general consensus is that it wasn't murderous and it wasn't genocidal. But the extent and the duration of the neglect was such that eventually subsequent commentators looked back on it and said, this is so bad, you'd have to think it was deliberate. It was on such a scale, and I mean, I'll never forget, I've said it before, you know, when you hear about something like the First World War and it, you, you know that millions of people were killed, your brain kind of doesn't process it. It's like trying to imagine the size of the universe. You know, your brain just says, no, sorry, it can't do that. And there's something similar kicks in when you try and imagine 20 million people being killed in a war. It's too much. And I'll never forget being in that one place, that one small peaceful place in Ireland, and realising that I was standing beside a mass grave of 10,000 people who'd all died at the same time, more or less. In, in the course of a year or so, all these people had died. And in the same way that if you find out what happened maybe to one family in the First World War, you can just begin to sense the hurt. And likewise, to be in just one location in Ireland and see something as obscene as a mass grave that includes children, I suddenly thought, right, I get this. I understand. And then you begin to understand. I mean, obviously, Ireland's a place that's, in our lifetimes and for a hundred years and more, has been a troubled place. And you begin to understand it's almost like a child that's been battered and gr and grows up to be to have severe problems. That kind of abuse that was inflicted upon Ireland in the 19th century, it did long-term harm. The British had practised the plantation of Ireland. They tried to displace and dilute the impact of the Catholic population by bringing in Protestants. Long before the famine or the, or the hunger, there were already movements within Ireland for independence, you know, to get away from Britain. But the obscenity of the Great Hunger really put fire into it. And in the aftermath, there were all sorts of groups started, the Society of United Irishmen, the Irish Patriot Party, Young Ireland, all these groups formed. And where before it had just been unrest, it was in the aftermath of what was what had been seen to have been done and what was experienced by the people 
that before long it became about bullets and bombs. As well as the million that died, something like a million or more emigrated if they could, if they could get away, if they had the means, you know, if they had the money for a ticket and maybe they had connections, maybe they had family members who were already over in somewhere like North America or Canada. A million people fled Ireland. The population just fell through the floor because the way in which so many people had been weakened, even if they survived, they were, you know, they were less likely to have children. You know, they didn't have the physical capacity for it. And so the, the, the damage that was done to a relatively small population was catastrophic. A lot of the people that emigrated, they, they were brokenhearted, leaving home and hearth and kin behind. And of course, they, they then arrived in, in North America with, you know, with all sorts of ill feeling. And you get groups like the Fenian Brotherhood were established, um, who, who, who began to raise money and, and to call for the end of British rule in Ireland. And that's really how it started. And it ends up years later with the Civil War and the IRA and all the rest of the unrest. The most powerful seeds of all of that were caused by the obscene neglect and abuse that was made manifest in Angorta Moor, the great hunger of, of Ireland of the 1840s. So food was leaving the country as the disaster was happening. Yeah. But they must have realised how bad things were because there were armed guards. They just didn't care. Well, it was beyond not caring. They knew it was happening. Um, and they were just dismissive of it. I mean, for a long time, there was a mindset within the British establishment, not necessarily within the British population generally, but in the minds of the British establishment, that Ireland was a problem. It was troublesome. There was unrest. So there was a lack of empathy and a lack of sympathy. The Irish, the Catholic Irish were looked on as a kind of another species. They were different, were foreign. Ireland was, a, you know, although it was only separated from, you know, the bigger island of Britain by a small, a narrow stretch of water, it was other. And the Irish were othered and they were foreign, difficult, problematic. And so when the tragedy started to sweep them up, there was a, a massive lag in time before anybody gave a damn because it was happening to people they didn't care about, felt no empathy for, felt no sense of kin with. It came from that. Maybe if it had been happening in another region of England, things might have been different. But the fact that it started to unfold in a place that was, that was trouble anyway as far as the establishment were concerned, it was like, oh God, let them go on with it. But the situation just didn't and couldn't fix itself. And so right through those years of hunger, 45, 46, 47, you know, the ships, because Ireland's a fertile place, but the poor couldn't afford any of it. You know, they couldn't buy the meat and they couldn't buy the, the fish. They didn't have any money. But a process had made them entirely dependent, pretty much, on the crops of potatoes that they could grow on the meagre patches of land that they were able to rent. And that was it. And so... All the hundreds of thousands of gallons of butter, all the meat, all the foodstuffs, all the good stuff, just went aboard ships and, and left. And that's why it was so, that's why it was such an obscenity. Because a famine, you think, oh, famine, that means there's no, well, no, there was food, but the poor weren't being given it. And the poor weren't getting it because they were poor and they couldn't afford to buy it. And nothing was done for them until it was too late for a million. It's just appalling. Just appalling. So, you know, if you want to understand why there, there, there is that rupture between the Long Island of Britain and the island of Ireland, well, look no further 
than that period in the 1840s when a blind eye and a deaf ear were turned to the mass starvation of ordinary men, women and children. Some know it as the island shaped like a sharp tooth, others as the lonely rock. It's also sometimes referred to as Ireland's teardrop. Fastnet, Ireland's most southerly point, has many names. The last part of Ireland that emigrants saw as they fled the great hunger on their way to North America. A site that saw many a teardrop shed. A treacherous rock that sank countless ships before a lighthouse was built upon it, a rock wreathed in sadness. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period.